So we are finally in Revelation chapter 3, making great progress. And so tonight we have the church at Sardis. So Revelation 3, And to the angel of the church at Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Okay. So that tells us what the subject of the letter is. Remember each of these letters that we've had, the subject gives you some idea of what the condition of the church is that he's writing. So, for those of you who have read ahead in the book, you know that uh, Sardis is one of the two churches that there is no commendation section. In other words, there's no good on the report card. It, it's all negative. And since the subject is the Holy Spirit, what we can infer from that is this is a church that doesn't have it. The Holy Spirit, that is. If we look at it prophetically, this would be the Church of the Reformation. Okay, And if you look at it uh, homiletically, what it's talking about is the condition of a church that is trying to operate without the Holy Spirit. The, the Reformation is the thing that was the reaction against the Catholic Church and the, and the excesses of the Catholic Church. And so if we read about Thyatira, and in a prophetic sense, what the Thyatira represents is the church trying to acquire worldly power which is typical of the Catholic Church under the age of the papacy. So if, if the um, prophetic thing holds true, if the, if the line follows, the next step in the development of, of Christendom was the Reformation. And that was, uh, of course, spearheaded by lots of people, one of the more famous ones obviously being Martin Luther, uh, but he was certainly by no means alone in that process. And Protestants would fall into that. Um, and again, for those of you who haven't been around, Protestant literally means a protesting Catholic. So you are still within the Catholic Church framework, however you're protesting the excesses of the papacy. Okay? So the Catholic Church regards Lutherans and Episcopalians and Methodists, those kinds of folks, as simply being Catholics who are in error because they have fallen away from the true teaching of the Central Church. In other words, they are protesting Catholics. At one point in my life, I was an Episcopalian, and it was known as Catholic light. One-third less guilt. Yeah, one-third less guilt. It, in fact, I, I can remember... When I was doing consulting work, I don't remember why I was in Canada. I was in Canada for some reason. That's where you teach classes. Well, I, I went there a couple times for different reasons. But anyway, I, I was there over a Sunday while I was still an Episcopalian and went to a, uh, you know, a, an Episcopalian church service, and it was very Catholic. If it wasn't for the name on the door, you wouldn't have been able to recognize the difference between the Episcopal service and the Catholic service. So anyway, what, I, what I'm suggesting to you is if the pattern holds, Sardis would then represent the Reformation. 
And the seven spirits of God are, of course, defined in Isaiah chapter 11. So if we go over to Isaiah 11, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, nor decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So anyway, back up to the Spirit of God. This is the sevenfold Spirit of God. And this is the only place, by the way, I know where it's defined. And if you, we've, we've done studies on this during Midrash on Shabbat, but basically this forms a menorah. You know, there's seven of them, and the central one is the Spirit of God. And then if you go out from there, you have wisdom and understanding on either side of the Spirit of God, then out once again, counsel and might, and then out once again, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So they are in pairs, just like the branches of the candlestick, if you will, and the order of the pairing is starting from the spirit and working your way out. I don't plan to do a long teaching on that. I'll have to do that again sometime. It's a good teaching. But anyway, that's, those are the seven spirits of the Lord. So back to uh, Revelation. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and what is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Okay, so what I'm saying here is the problem with this church is the lack of the Holy Spirit, and the lack of the Holy Spirit results in a dead church. And notice the metaphor. Wake up. What is the metaphor in all of Scripture for death? It's sleep. Yeah, it's sleep. So, in, in the entire Bible, when someone dies, it's described as he is sleeping with his ancestors, or sleeping with his fathers, or sleeping in the dust. So, this wake up is you're dead, come back to life, be raised, and do the things that you're supposed to be doing. There is yet something there in that church that's worth saving. Okay? Otherwise, Yeshua wouldn't say, wake up. Now, one of the characteristics of this church is it thinks it's alive, but it's dead. In other words, if you were to go into that church and ask them what the state of that church was, they would you know, give you all of the indicators that say this church is alive and well and healthy. You know, the tithe is good, we're growing, you know, we're, we're doing mission work, you know, whatever it is they're doing, they're doing all that stuff. So from their perspective, they have got a strong, going concern, good church. 
And it's only the Messiah looking in from the outside that points out to them, you're dead. And nothing that you're doing is of any value to me. Hello? How many churches do we know that are decisively engaged in doing stuff that doesn't really have any relationship to what God wants them to be doing? Which isn't to say that from lots and lots of perspective, it isn't worthwhile stuff to do. Band is playing to keep people amused while the ship is going down. Sure. Now, the comment was that the last survivor of the Titanic just died at the age of, what, 93 was she? 97. 97? Yeah, she was a, a baby at the time. And, you know, in, in, in a dead church, the band keeps playing, the choir keeps singing. Uh, we got activities to keep people occupied. And, you know, there's all sorts of stuff, and they think they're alive. And it's only God looking in from the outside that says, nope, you're dead. There's nothing there. And it's interesting, if you look at each of these churches, pretty much every one of them has a wrong opinion of itself. Pretty much goes through the whole seven letters. I think it's Smyrna that's, that says, you think you're poor, but you're rich. In other words, they look upon themselves as being in poverty, but Yeshua looks upon them as being rich. They are under persecution. Again, if you look at the gospel, and the gospel is that the kingdom of God breaks in on the kingdom of man and brings his own out of that system, one of the consequences of being in the kingdom of man, but being of the kingdom of God and taking it seriously, is you very often get persecuted. And persecution can take the form of losing your job, not being able to get anybody to do business with you. Yeshua is saying, you say you're poor, but no, you're not, you're rich. They don't understand God's perspective on them. All they're doing is they are, you know, they're the toad under the hoe, and, and, and they're struggling, and they're being persecuted, and they're, they've got their plate full just dealing with being persecuted, and it takes Yeshua from the outside to look at them and say, these people are really rich because they don't see it. And in the case of Sardis here, they think they're doing just fine. But what he's saying is, nope, you're really dead. And, and what I'm saying is that runs through the letters is Yeshua has a very different perspective on the state of an individual church than the people in the church at that time have. To be always studying, always more than that, what I would uh, the comment was that it's also Im imperative on us that we not necessarily think we're doing it right. More than that, it's imperative upon us not to become certain that we're right, and always to be seeking Him, and always when because one of the things that often happens is somebody will come in from the outside and take a look one look at you and say. Yeah. And the reaction when somebody does come in from the outside to your church and say, my God, what a dead group, is, Mwah! look at all our programs. Look at all the stuff we're doing. How, how can you say that? And, and what's happened there sometimes is 
that God has essentially sent a messenger in with a message. Say, stop reading your own press releases. Stop reading your own press releases and listen to me. And our human tendency, when that happens, is to circle the wagons and throw the messenger out and say, we're just fine, thank you. Anyway, onward here. First off, he tells them to wake up. And he tells them that there is still something there that can be salvaged. So verse 3. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So again, this wake up metaphor, which is you know, Bible talk for get up from the dead. Now, remember what you received and heard. Remember what you received and heard. I'm going to suggest to you that one of the things that happened at Pentecost is they received the Holy Spirit. And they heard the gospel being taught in their own language. Remember, that was what happened in Acts chapter 2. So they received and they heard. And what I'm suggesting to you is happening with this church is that that's dying out. Now, that brings up something interesting. Having received the Holy Spirit, can you lose it? Lose Him? Yeah, Psalm 51. David says, do not take your spirit from me. So it appears that having received the Holy Spirit, it takes some maintenance to keep him around. One of the things that happens and has been happening in the body of Christ is this idea that you can rattle off a quick prayer and then you're good to go. If we, if we can just get this sinner to rattle off that quick prayer, we've got him and we can move on to the next sinner. And what I'm going to suggest to you is that's wrong. If you look at what Yeshua said and John the Baptist said and everybody else says, what's the first thing that comes out of his mouth? Yeah. Repent. Repent. Or the kingdom of heaven is near. Uh, So what he's saying is, repent, change your direction, and become a disciple. Disciple. And the root word of disciple and the root word of discipline are the same. So the idea is that you change direction, you repent... And then you become a disciple, which is to say you study and you walk in the ways of the kingdom for the rest of your life. There isn't anything in Yeshua's message that says, say this short little two-line prayer and then go your way. Yeshua never said that. Paul never said that. John the baptizer never said that. That's not sound. The message is repent and then become a disciple. And becoming a disciple is a lifelong thing, 
and it is something that you can stop doing if you want to or if you neglect it. And what, what the, the church here at Sardis is, is saying is, you guys had it. You were given it and you heard it. You've lost it. Okay? And I can't say it any clearer, clearer than that. Now, again, lest some of you get all over me about eternal security and all that kind of stuff, it is God's policy that once you decide to join his kingdom, he doesn't let you go willingly. And he will arrange things in your life to keep batting you back to the center. You won't enjoy most of it, but it'll, it'll happen. You know, my perspective is if you have free will and you have a choice about going in, you also have a choice about whether you stay in. So if you have a choice whether you stay in, you can, you can not stay in by choice. In other words, you can just say, I don't buy this stuff anymore. I'm, I'm going to go off my own way and do my own thing. I mean, that's, that's a conscious decision. Or you can lose it by neglect. Okay? By not doing the maintenance. Because any relationship requires maintenance. And it's a covenant, and it's a marriage. And I don't know about you, but, you know, I, I tend to be, you know, I married you, I told you I love you then, if anything ever changes, I'll let you know. Well, that's not good enough. Okay? That's not good enough. Well, I, I, no, no, I'm, I'm sure, you know, guys tend to be that way. But, I mean, you know, I, I tend to be that way. I shouldn't generalize to guys. I, I tend to be that way. But the point is, even I know that that's not good enough. You've got to maintain a relationship if that relationship is going to be sound. And what these folks have done is not. I, I quite frankly don't think that this church is one who has, you know, looked at the scriptures and said, I don't believe that stuff and just decided to go off and be apostate. I don't, I don't believe that's the case in this case. I believe that this church has simply drifted away through lack of maintenance, lack of diligence, however you want to describe it, but they don't have any relationship with God anymore as evidenced by the fact that they don't have the Holy Spirit and as evidenced by the fact that they're dead. Even though they have the form of godliness, they deny the power thereof. But heard that particular piece of scripture? Having a form of godliness but denying the power? That's the, you know, who's the power source of God? Holy Spirit is the power source of God. That's the power through which Yeshua did all of his miracles. That's the power source. So if you have the form of godliness, which means you're going through the motions, you're still you're going to church, you've got your butt in the pew every week, and you know, you're on the altar guild and all that kind of stuff, but there's no power, you're missing it. Okay? Because God wants you to have power. That's what the Holy Spirit is. And this church doesn't have it. Yes, I would agree with that. Uh, again, to get it on tape. Verse 3, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you do not wake up, if you will not wake up, hang on, will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. 
Yeshua says over and over and over again that the thief in the night is for unbelievers. In other words, if you're surprised that Yeshua is showing up, you've got the wrong relationship. And he says, you know, look around. You, you can look at the sky and you can tell it's going to rain. You can, you can see all these things in the natural. What I'm telling you is you ought to be able to see them in the spiritual too. And you ought to be able to see when things are coming to a head and you ought to be able to see that the time is near. Just like you can see, look at the fig tree and you see it starts to blow and you know the spring, you know, just, you know, agricultural metaphors all over the place. And he says, you ought to be able to tell when I'm due back. I personally believe, doesn't mean I'm right, it just means it's what I think, that no man knows the day or the hour. I think that refers to Rosh Hashanah. Because that's the only one of the feasts of God that you don't know when it's going to be. You know within a 72-hour period when it's going to be, but you don't know which one of those days is actually going to be the new moon until the new moon shows up, and then it is. I think that's what it's referring to. I'm, I'm, I'm not one of these people who believe that he could come back 24-7, 365, and you always got to have your boots on. He doesn't say that. And Paul does the same thing over and over again, say, if you are in relationship to God properly, you're not going to be surprised. The thief in the night metaphor is for unbelievers. Verse 4, we're doing, we're doing great. Yet you have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So, let's talk about garments. Go to Zechariah 3.3. 3. Actually, let's pick it up at the beginning of the verse. Je- Zechariah 3. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. All right, so now we have the scenario, right? You've got the high priest and you've got Satan, both of them standing before God. Sort of reminds you with Job, except Job wasn't in heaven when the Satan accused him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. And that ought to just twist your head right there. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Yes, they're both Yehovah. We are not amused. He's talking in the royal phrase. That would certainly be a legitimate interpretation. Uh, I happen to believe that you have two persons of God standing there, Satan attacking, you've got Yeshua defending. I happen to believe that's what's going on. Doesn't mean it is. That's just what I think. In front of God the Father. In front of what we would call God the Father. So, verse 2. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Parentheses read white. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. All right, so first thing we've got is the case where Satan is accusing the high priest. Yeshua, I believe, is defending him. 
and he is, has his filthy garments, and notice he's as a brand plucked from the fire. So what I'm inferring there is his garments are sooty, smoky. You know, in other words, if, if, if God has reached into the fire and plucked him out and saved him, that his garments are, are sooty and smoky and smudged and you know, all the things that you can imagine that somebody who had been rescued from a fire. That's my imagination. But it does say he is clothed with filthy garments. Now, the same thing happens in Jude, verse 23, I believe. Same metaphor. Oops. Verse 22. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So it's the same metaphor that you have in Zechariah. Except here the garment has been stained by the flesh. Third place we need to go is where is the first place that garment is used in Scripture? Genesis. Genesis. Yep. After the sin of Adam and Eve, God makes them a garment of skins. The word garment, beged, is of the same root as rebellion. So the reason that we wear garments at all is because we rebelled against God. Garments are not a good thing. Although cloth is your friend. (laughs) For those of us who are uh, getting up there in years, cloth is your friend. But understand that biblically, clothing is a constant reminder to us of our rebellion. Okay, And the reason that we wear clothing, is, and God doesn't want to see us naked. Remember, one of the things that he says to the high priest is, you put on the holy boxer shorts so I don't see your butt as you go up to sacrifice. It's exactly what it says. Okay, <laughs> So the whole point here is, garments are a reminder of our rebellion. Filthy garments as in Jude here, are garments that are stained by the flesh or that are stained by the conflagration that happened to Jerusalem because of rebellion. So the idea that you're in filthy garments is sort of an intensification of the rebellion that garments represent. So what God then does is takes that metaphor and turns it around. And he says... I will give you pure garments. So in in verse 4, then, we're back in in Revelation. Then yet you have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So again, what I'm suggesting is that even in this dead church, you still have some people who are walking in a way that is pleasing to God. And those will then exchange their garments for garments of white. Five. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. So again, although this church isn't doing anything right corporately, there are people in the church who are doing things right. And again, 
that should speak volumes to us as we look at our Sunday brethren who we think are walking contrary to Torah and all those kinds of things. There are people in all of those churches that are walking in ways that are pleasing to God, even if they got bacon breath. Verse 5, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. I will never blot his name out of the book of life. And that indicates that their names are in the book of life. And it also indicates that it's possible to have your name blotted out of the book of life. And we see that in the Torah. Remember, Moses, when Israel sins, falls on his face before God and says, God, if you ain't going to save them, blot me out. Erase me. Okay? And if anybody's in the book of life, as far as I'm concerned, you know, Moses ought to be right up there on page one. I mean, he, he's certainly got it way over me. And yet Moses was willing to be blotted out for the sake of Israel. And, and in that sense, by the way, he represents Yeshua, who was also willing to be blotted out for the sake of humanity. Paul, does, Paul says much the same thing, uh, that he was willing to be accursed that if his brethren would come to know Yeshua. Sure. So it's, it's again, very typical uh, sacrificial love of, of Israel. We're at five and a half. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. You as an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay. Now, if we look at this, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. I will never blot his name out. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. And you've got two things. Remember up at the beginning, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So what I read this to be is the church, this church is missing the Holy Spirit, yet they do have some people that believe and remember. And Yeshua is the one who holds the seven stars in his hands. And the seven stars represent the seven churches. And so what's going to be necessary is for Yeshua then to stand up in front of his father and say their names in order for them to, to get into the world to come. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.